It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Epic Games' parody of Apple's famous 1984 commercial was only part of the massive PR campaign it launched, in addition to suing Apple for antitrust violations. And the high-stakes battle taking place in a California courtroom is worthy of Epic's popular Fortnite game. Joining me is Joshua Davis, a professor at the University of San Francisco Law School. So tell us what Epic is complaining about. So Epic's complaint against Apple is that Apple is forcing people to pay Apple rather than just Epic when it makes purchases specifically in regard to Fortnite, which is a popular game. And Epic says not only does Apple force those customers to pay Apple in order to operate on the Apple system, but also that Apple charges much higher prices than it should of those users. So Epic basically doesn't want to have to give up some of its profits to Apple when people play Fortnite on an iPhone. So in deciding whether Apple has monopoly power, the first question is going to be, what's the market? How is that determined? They're claiming that Apple has monopoly power, which is the power to charge higher prices than it could in a competitive market. And so how can Epic prove monopoly power is a really big issue, not only in this case, but in the future resolution of tech cases against Google and Apple and in that space generally. You know, big picture, there's two ways potentially to prove that Apple does in fact have monopoly power. One is called through direct evidence. And monopoly power is just the power to charge prices that are higher than what happened in the competitive market. And Epic wants to say, well, let's look at your profits and we'll see that they're much too high for a competitive market. Clearly, you have the ability to charge super competitive prices because you did. You're charging much more than your cost. And this is really profitable for you for that reason. That's somewhat controversial, as strange as it sounds, to show that Apple actually did charge really high prices. And that shows it has the power to charge really high prices. But sometimes courts say, no, 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 you can't use direct evidence. You have to use circumstantial evidence. You have to define a market and show that Apple has a really high percentage of that market. And so under that approach, Apple gets to argue, well, the market's not just us and our iPhones or our iPhones and our computers. It's other smartphones. It's other computers or similar devices. And we have a relatively small percentage if you define the market that broadly. So that's one of the really big battles will be, does Epic get to prove its case through direct evidence? Hey, you actually did charge really high prices, much higher than can be explained through competitive forces. 
Or do they have to go through this other process of saying, well, let's define the market, what products are in theory substitutable for Apple's iPhones in regard to Fortnite, and what percentage does Apple have of that market? That's going to be one of the really hotly contested issues, not only in this case, but in the related or similar antitrust tech cases that have already started and more that are no doubt coming down the pike. Who do you think has the better argument on the market? What constitutes the market here? I think as a matter of economics, Epic has the better position that direct evidence should be enough by itself. You know, I think they're right as a matter of economic theory, which is what the law is supposed to incorporate, that if Apple did in fact charge super competitive prices, prices above competitive levels, then it surely had the power to do so. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen the information to say whether Apple in fact does that. I suspect it does. But I think that would be a matter of evidence, you know, the evidence that's to come. And as a matter of law, it gets messier because there is a case actually that's in the Ninth Circuit that may be binding that says direct evidence is enough. But there's been more recent Supreme Court case law that muddies those waters. So as a matter of law, it's a little tricky. I mean, honestly, I think lawyers sometimes mess up the economics on which they're supposed to be relying. And that this, that's created some confusion in this area. So the question is whether Apple had monopoly power and then whether Apple abused its monopoly power in violation of the antitrust laws. What kind of evidence will be introduced by Epic to prove that Apple abused its monopoly power? So having a monopoly by itself is not illegal, but there are various sorts of ways of acquiring or maintaining or abusing market power that would be. And one of the arguments that Epic has made is that Apple has tied accessing Fortnite to the Apple App Store with paying for that service. And so that's one kind of argument that could be an abuse of market power, tying together one service or good, which a defendant has monopoly power, to another one to force people to pay more than they would in a competitive market. And Apple's response in part is, no, 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 that's one service. Those two are not separable, and therefore there can't be a tie. And we'll have to see if that or any of the other arguments Epic makes are persuasive to the court. Apple also says that it has business reasons, and one of those reasons being ensuring security on its platform. Right. And so um, now there is some evidence that's come to light that suggests that Apple really can't provide the kind of security um, that it claims is a justification for its conduct. And Epic presumably will try to prove that security can be maintained just as well through an alternative approach to payment. And so I would imagine that's another factual or evidentiary issue that will be important in the case. Epic will argue that's a pretext, that security is a pretext Apple's offering, and Apple will say no, it's a legitimate business justification for its conduct. So something that seems sort of odd to me is that Apple wants the courtroom closed when Epic calls an expert witness to testify about the profitability of the App Store. Also, even I think in papers, when Epic referenced the profitability of the App Store, that was redacted for the public. Why shouldn't the public hear those numbers? Why should that be a secret? This is a larger issue as well, and it's pretty much standard operating procedures for antitrust defendants. Pre-trial and even sometimes during trial, 
they really want to keep as much of their information secret as possible. And they would say that this is proprietary information, that if others competitors have it, it will place them at a competitive disadvantage. They may even say that sharing this sort of information could facilitate anti-competitive conduct. And, you know, there could some, sometimes there is truth to that. You know, sometimes there are trade secrets or special sauce that they don't want everyone to know the recipe to. On the other hand, a lot of times this is really an effort to prevent other potential plaintiffs from gaining access to the evidence that they would use in their own litigation. And it really isn't justified in any legitimate way. And the closer you get to a final decision, when you're at trial, for example, the more reluctant courts tend to be to keep this information secret. The burden's going to be pretty high in Apple to persuade the court that this information should be kept from the public because trials are not only a private dispute resolution mechanism, they're a public event in a democracy like ours. And citizens and elected officials who are paying very close attention to various high-tech markets right now are very interested in this. And so the court may be reluctant to keep this information from them. Why is the amount of profit that Apple gets, why is that information important in this case when, you know, Apple developed the system and the App Store and people buy its iPhone because they like its product? Why shouldn't they be able to charge what they want to charge and make as much profit as they can? So the the short answer is monopoly power is not itself an antitrust violation. And so um, the mere fact that they're charging, let's say they have very high profits, would not itself be illegal. But it, it is relevant to the case in a couple of ways. One is if Apple has really high profits, that can be an indication that it has monopoly power. That is, it has the ability to charge much higher prices than our competitive. Now, that wouldn't be illegal, but it would be one of the things that Epic has to prove, that Apple, if it engaged in anti-competitive conduct, has the power to cause some real harm. And a second issue to which it can be relevant, uh, that is, Apple's profits can be relevant, is Epic's going to argue that not only did it have the power to cause this anti-competitive harm, and not only did it act in violation of the antitrust laws, but it, in fact, did harm Epic and the purchasers from Epic. And so there's real antitrust harm here. And so those really high profits, if they exist, can speak to two of three kind of central issues in the case. One is, does Apple have market power? Is it capable of causing the kind of harm the antitrust laws are meant to prevent? And if Apple has really high profits, that could support the conclusion, yes, it has those power, that power. And then second, if Apple engaged in anti-competitive conduct, did it it in fact cause harm? And here too, the Apple's really high profits could show, yeah, it really did cause harm if it engaged in anti-competitive behavior. But those profits wouldn't address, as you suggested, the third issue of did Apple engage in anti-competitive behavior? There, Epic has to rely on other evidence. So the high profits are relevant to key parts of the case, but they don't necessarily resolve, they shouldn't resolve the entire case. Epic still needs to show that not only did Apple have monopoly power and not only did it use it to charge higher prices, but that it either acquired or maintained or abused that monopoly power um, through inappropriate anti-competitive means. Epic has engaged in a PR campaign, and I'm wondering what the point of that is when you have one judge making the decision. It's not a jury. 
Right. Well, so you have one judge making the decision, but there's two points. One reason to engage in that PR campaign is that the judge is probably not the only audience for Epic's litigation and for its PR. Right now, Congress is considering amending the antitrust laws, especially as they pertain or maybe exclusively as they pertain to the high tech sector. And so you do have these strange times where there is a sort of bipartisan skepticism of big tech and its market power. I think that comes from the Democrat side because of a general, at least right now, a general uh, concern about that kind of market power. And it comes from the Republican side in part because I think the Republicans feel like big tech has been um, political in a way they don't like. And so there's a possibility of congressional action. So Epic is not only talking to this judge, but Epic is also talking to Congress saying, you know, so, so Epic could lose this case, win in Congress and bring this case again and win, depending on uh, if uh, Congress enacts new legislation and uh, what that legislation might look like. And then the other thing is, you know, judges, um, they are not completely oblivious to or indifferent to public reaction. And so uh, I'm not, you know, this judge is a very good judge. I'm sure she will exercise her independent judgment. But, you know, there's a possibility that Epic is hoping that um, PR can have some influence in court as well. So that's another possibility. There's a lot of gloom and doom from Apple about what would happen if it loses the case, that it would threaten iOS security, turn the App Store into a flea market. What do you think about the possibilities if Apple loses? It's really hard to know. I I suspect that the result would be that the market would reconfigure. I also suspect that the sky would not fall. I mean, it's standard, standard operating procedure for a defendant in a case like this to argue the sky will fall. And that's smart as a matter of law because it is relevant. Right. If, in fact, there are pro-competitive benefits to what Apple is doing, then those could be destroyed by an adverse ruling against Apple. And that's relevant as a matter of law. It also will make a judge nervous. I mean, judges in antitrust cases do tend to be very nervous about the possibility that they'll rule in such a way that they'll destroy the market that they're trying to protect. Because, you know, it's hard to predict what exactly the economic effects of a, a strong judicial ruling might be. And so Apple is understandably playing into that. And of course, Apple may be right. I myself am skeptical. I think Apple has an extraordinarily profitable company. Many aspects of how it does business are profitable. And I suspect that while it would lose some profits, even significant profits, if Epic were to win, I think the market would be able to function just fine. And so, uh, but it's hard to know. And, uh, you know, I don't envy the judge having to make that decision. Do you have an opinion about which side has the stronger case? I don't at this point, really. Uh, as the evidence comes out, I think we'll have a much better sense. For me, it's, it's pretty speculative at this point. I'm not, I don't have any sort of special access. You know, the burden's pretty heavy for Epic for the reasons I've said. I, judges tend to be pretty cautious about disrupting existing markets, established markets, and so I think that's, you know, a heavy burden for Epic to carry. But we're at a funny moment historically in this country where folks of a lot of different political persuasions think that maybe we have not been aggressive enough in enforcing our antitrust laws when it comes to big tech. 
And I think for me, I'd need to see the evidence and to, to form a considered judgment about how this case should come out. If Epic wins, that might mean that consumers have to pay less for the apps. Does that play anywhere in this trial? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a standard principle of antitrust law in this country that the antitrust laws are not designed to protect competitors. They're designed to protect competition. And what that means is, you know, whether Epic makes more or less or Apple makes more or less is not really ultimately the point. The point is, what about consumers? And so this is a case in some ways best understood as would the market function perfectly well if Epic wins and in fact better so that consumers still get the products they want, but they get them at a cheaper price? If that's what the court ultimately concludes, then it really should rule for Epic. If on the other hand, Apple's right and either prices wouldn't go down or they would, but the change in the market structure would cause all sorts of new problems, such as a loss of security or certain products, games not being available anymore, or consumers becoming frustrated and having a difficult time doing what they were able to do in the past, then Apple can and should win. Really, the consumer perspective tends to be dominant in antitrust law. And so, yes, it's very important whether consumers would pay more or less, and also whether the same services and goods would be available to consumers if the court were to rule in favor of Epic. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Joshua Davis of the University of San Francisco Law School. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. As the Supreme Court waded into the war on drugs this week, there was an unusually lopsided set of litigants, so lopsided that the court had to appoint an outside lawyer to argue to uphold the law at issue after the Biden administration switched sides and backed the defendant. The question was whether the lowest-level drug offenders are eligible for retroactive relief under the First Step Act and can seek resentencing. Lawmakers from both parties, both conservative and liberal groups, and the Biden administration say Congress intended for the law to encompass low-level offenders. But many of the justices sounded skeptical that the statutory language would allow that interpretation. Here are Justices Stephen Breyer and Brett Kavanaugh. But I can't get away from this statute. Why didn't Congress just say everyone who's been sentenced for crack offenses under 841 is eligible for resentencing? Something simple like that. Joining me is Mark Osler, a professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law who specializes in sentencing policy. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about the First Step Act. Sure. The First Step Act that was passed in 2018, it had a number of provisions. Um, it was it was created new metrics of data within the Bureau of Prisons. It um, enhanced some reentry provisions. But one of the primary things that it did was make retroactive a prior law, uh, the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. And what that did was change the 100 to 1 ratio between powder and crack cocaine. In other words, in both the sentencing guidelines and the statute that created mandatory minimums, 
you were sentenced the same for five grams of crack as you were for 500 grams of powder cocaine. And this had really disparate impacts uh, in terms of race. And I was a federal prosecutor in the 1990s in Detroit. There were a lot of crack cases coming through that office. And of course, it was all or almost all um, black defendants in those cases. And in time, that became noticed. And in 2010, they changed the law, but they didn't make it retroactive. And that was a continuing problem because you had people who were sentenced under the old law who uh, didn't have the advantage of the, the change in attitude and the adjustment that had been made. And that festered for a long time. Um, you know, the Obama administration wasn't able to fix it. And eventually there was a bipartisan movement in uh, Congress that pushed for that change, among others. And it came through in the First Step Act of 2018 that was signed by Donald Trump. Um, you know, notably, the name indicated it was supposed to be one of a series of bills, but it was the only one that got through. Mark, the issue here is a bit technical. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but the original law, the mandatory minimum that regards crack and a number of other drugs, sets three different tiers. And the top tier previously was over 50 grams of crack and over five grams of crack for the middle tier. And then the bottom tier was under five grams. And then those thresholds all went up under the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. And that's what the First Step Act made retroactive. And so, in other words, people could go back and say, I want to be resentenced under the current law. And that meant that, let's say, if you had been sentenced under the top tier for, you know, 60 grams of crack, now you're not in that threshold. And so they could be resentenced. Now, the problem was that the First Step Act said explicitly that it applied to sentences and mandatory minimums that have been modified by the Fair Sentencing Act. And the argument from the government under the Trump administration was that that meant that the top two tiers, which had been changed explicitly, uh, that people who'd been sentenced under those got relief. But people for whom they weren't charged with a threshold of over five grams of crack, that they didn't have the benefit of this change. That's an argument that doesn't make much sense in terms of policy, why you would give relief to people that were more culpable, but not people who are less culpable. But that's what the, is at the heart of this. Is the 11th Circuit upheld a decision below that Mr. Terry, the petitioner, did not have the ability to have his sentence reviewed under the First Step Act because he wasn't in those top two tiers. On the date when the government's main brief in the case was due, the Biden administration informed the court that it was changing positions from the Trump administration and now siding with the defendant in the case. So the court appointed an outside lawyer to argue the case against the defendant and the reduced sentence. Why did the Biden administration change positions at the last minute? I think that they had pressure from reformers, certainly, that they should do so, that there were a number of people, including myself, who had taken up these First Step Act cases pro bono and it had noticed the problems with them. And frankly, it was inconsistent with the very bipartisan spirit that was behind the First Step Act in the first place. You know, one thing that fascinates me about this, especially in our current political climate, is that there was amicus brief that was submitted in support of the First Step Act applying to Mr. Terry that was submitted by four senators, Durbin, Booker, Grassley, and Senator Mike Lee. 
Now, that's a pretty incredible lineup. I mean, from one end of the ideological spectrum to the other. And it really reflects the bipartisan consensus that was behind the First Step Act. Was there more questioning about the intent of the act or about the statutory language? The justices were interested both in what the intent was, but also, you know, what injustices does this create? And underneath it all is you look at what Mr. Terry was sentenced to, 15 and a half years in prison for four grams of crack. It's shocking. And, you know, I'll tell you, I'm talking to you right now from downtown Minneapolis. I'm about a mile away from where Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd, is going to be sentenced shortly. And most people are saying that what he'll get for that cold-blooded killing that America saw is going to be about 15 years. And that's the same as Mr. Terry got for having the four grams of crack. Some of the justices seemed sympathetic to Terry's plight, to his sentence being excessive. But, for example, Justice Breyer said, I can't get away from this statute. And even Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is considered one of the justices who is more sympathetic to criminal defendants, even she seemed to indicate that you just can't get around the words of the statute. Yeah, and I'm hoping that, you know, the argument will prevail in the, that, you know, what's in the statute is is modified. And what, you know, the parties, and this was something that the senator said was their intent, was that that means something different than amended. Because, obviously, Tier 2 and Tier 3, the upper two tiers, were specifically amended. But that also modifies that bottom tier by raising the level from 5 grams to, to 28 grams, I think it was. And that is, that's the, you know, probably the best argument going to the statutory language. And one thing about, about Justice Breyer is that his history in sentencing is complicated, that it's, it's one where he's been, he was on the sentencing commission that drafted the original sentencing guidelines that were mandatory that in the Booker decision, he argued that, that there should, they should not be converted to being advisory. So he's somebody who has a complicated history with these issues. And the fact that, you know, he was sticking to the language of the statute is, is really in keeping with some of his prior jurisprudence in this area. During the oral arguments, did any of the justices seem inclined to adopt that argument? It seemed that most of the justices thought the statutory language was a problem for Terry and wouldn't support a retroactive interpretation. Yeah, and, you know, that, of course, reflects the circuit split that they were presented with, that four of the circuits had, you know, been on the side that the 11th Circuit was, that this new law did not apply to Mr. Terry, and there were, I believe, two circuits had held that he would have. So, you know, the lay of the land was in favor of that, that reading the statute. Were there any questions from the textualists on the court which, which indicated which way they might go? You know, I don't recall specifically if there were, but, you know, even if you are a textualist, that, that question of is modified different than amend is something to take seriously. So will you explain the modify versus amend argument? Yeah, well, there's no question that if the statute had said amended, those portions that were amended, they would only apply to the top two tiers because it it changed explicitly the thresholds that had to be met for them to apply to enhance a crack sentence. Uh, 
However, it did also modify, even though it didn't expressly amend the bottom tier, it did modify or change that bottom tier because uh, it was it was expanded basically from five to twenty eight grams. So that's you know that's that's going to be the distinction that they'll be talking about in the conference. I'm curious. I don't know if you know the answer to this. If Terry is about to to be finished serving his sentence. So is it just that this case took that long to get through the system? Well, there's a couple things. He's on home confinement right now, and he'll be done in September, I believe. Uh, and it, it, you know, it could be just this is the case that got up to the Supreme Court to resolve the issue. Um, you know, it's, it's not moot. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the fact that he's on home confinement is a function of, of the COVID uh, pandemic where under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration, many people who are towards the end of their sentence are being switched over to, to home confinement. But, well, you know, one thing is people will say, you know, that's, we're talking about, about, you know, three or four months. <laughs> that, that matters. You know, if you think back to your own life for the past three or four months, if they were just gone, you know, if you had been in prison for that period of time, that would matter. And, and too often we discount the, the value of time when it's a, a smaller amount of time on top of a larger sentence. How many people might be affected, if you know, by the Supreme Court's decision here? I don't know. I don't have a handle on that. I, I mentioned before that I've represented um, some people pro bono. I had four clients all in the Sixth Circuit, and none of them were in this situation. Um, and because people in that lowest tier do tend to get shorter sentences, um, it's not going to be, the number of prison people in prison isn't going to be as great as the people in the upper tiers. I have to say, this seems like such a technical argument. You know, you've got the the sentencing guideline book that's you know inches thick that is like a tax code at this point, and that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is. Is that complexity, the tears and those things, they become normative. You know, when we say that the, that <laughs> the right sentence for five grams of crack is five years, that becomes normative. It sounds scientific. But that masks crazy realities. You know, that someone for four grams of crack got 15 and a half years, that, that's irrational. No one was being denied crack by the fact that this one person who is selling is, is out of commission. Um, and yet we're taking on the societal costs of that imprisonment. Um, yeah, so that complexity, that technicality of it, um, yeah, that does bar people from digging into it. But once we do, we find that really ugly reality. When judges had more discretion, there was a problem with judges having discretion too. People were upset that some judges were giving sentences that were out of the ballpark. So where's the happy right. medium? Yeah, and that's what we're that's what we're trying to find is that happy medium between judges having so much discretion that bias comes into play and, and you have incredibly disparate sentences and where uh, we don't have these mandatory laws that bind judges and, and create these, frankly, pretty ridiculous sentences, as we saw for, for Mr. Terry in, in this case. You know, there's been a, a back and forth over decades between uniformity and discretion for judges. It's like watching a ball roll back and forth in a cup. 
And at some point, it's going to have to come to an equilibrium. And this case is a part of that. If the court decides against Mr. Terry, does that just leave everything in place as it was before? It'll leave everything else in place. So the other two tiers will be unaffected. Um, and, you know, those people who are doing longer terms under this are going to have to pursue other avenues. For example, clemency. One would hope that if the Biden uh, administration loses this case, that their reaction will be to identify those people like Mr. Terry and let them out under the power of clemency. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Mark Osler of the University of St. Thomas School of Law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.